You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Welcome to a bonus episode of SpyCast, the official podcast of the International Spy Museum. I'm Aaron Dietrich, your host, Dr. Andrew Hammonds, content partner. Each week, we explore some aspect of the past, present, or future of intelligence and espionage. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. This bonus episode comes to you directly from the stage of the International Spy Museum. Last month, we hosted a live panel discussion in collaboration with our friends at Goat Rodeo, who produced the new podcast, Spy Valley, an engineer's nuclear betrayal, a series by Project Brazen and PRX. The riveting series tells the true story of James Harper, a Silicon Valley engineer turned spy who sold nuclear secrets to the Soviet bloc. In this live panel discussion, you will hear the voices of moderator Sharon Weinberger, the National Security and Foreign Policy Editor at the Wall Street Journal, Zach Dorfman, the investigative journalist and host of Spy Valley, John Gibbons, who headed the United States Attorney's Prosecution Team in the case against James Harper, Dr. Raymond J. Batvins, former supervisory special agent and counterintelligence course instructor at the Institute of World Politics, and Dr. Vince Houghton, director of the National Cryptologic Museum and former historian at SPY. They'll explore how the tech capital of the world became a hotbed for Soviet bloc spies and what James Harper's betrayal of his country meant for modern-day warfare. We want to thank our friends and collaborators at Goat Rodeo, Project Brazen, and PRX for their support of this program. You can listen to all six episodes of Spy Valley now, wherever you get your podcasts. Good evening. Hello, everyone. Hi. Welcome to the International Spy Museum. I'm Amanda Olke, Director of Adult Education here at this wonderful Museum, and we are so delighted to have you with us for Spy Valley, an engineer's nuclear betrayal. And this program is done in conjunction with the podcast series by the same name from Project Brazen and Goat Rodeo. And that series is dropping now, so you can catch up and listen to the ones you haven't heard yet. And tonight's program is being recorded and may feature in upcoming episodes or in bonus content. So you guys have already got the drop on this series. Now to tell you more about the series, I wanna briefly turn this over to Goat Rodeo, CEO and lovely person, Ian Enright. 
Thank you. Don't know what I did to get an honorific of lovely person, but I'll take it. <laughs> uh, thank you guys so much for being here. Also, big thank you to the Spy Museum to throw right back to them. There are very few places in DC that we would prefer to go to than here. And it is just always such a wonderful time to be in this space. It's just such a, uh, a beautiful, beautiful museum. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about, about Spy Valley. I want to throw a little bit of uh, shine to some people that deserve it. But uh, Spy Valley is a series about the act of espionage, specifically in this case, the act of espionage of one man, a man by the name of James Harper, who is one of the most consequential spies during the Cold War. Uh, it is a wild story. Uh, it is a story that, for most reporters, uh, I think is a, a dream. It's, it will certainly be one of the dream stories that we will have at Goat Rodeo. But if your takeaway from this series is a wild romp and a fun spy story, I would submit that I think you're missing a bigger point. 40 years from now, there will be lots of stories about spying. Spying about events happening as we speak. And I really feel that Spy Valley is a roadmap to the way spying happens. There's a direct line between what was happening in the 1980s and the story you hear in Spy Valley to what's happening today. And uh, I hope as you all have listened to it, as you all uh, hear about it on the stage tonight that you guys reflect on that and why places like the Spy Museum do such a beautiful job of making sure that that is understood uh, in a, a much more clear fashion. Uh, Zach and the fantastic bunch of producers who developed this series represents, I think, the best of what audio storytelling can do with the best of what a amazing reporter can do with their work. And we are so honored and privileged that Brazen uh, could make that a reality. And uh, for those of you that don't know, uh, Brazen and Project Brazen are uh, a journalism and story studio that does amazing work funding ambitious projects that just don't get funded anywhere else. So the very least that you could do is support their work. And the very most that you could do is become a Brazen Plus subscriber, which they did not pay me to say that, but you know. Uh, this stuff very much is a team sport, and I would be remiss if I didn't give a couple quick points of recognition. Uh, the first and foremost, and gives the most recognition from the Goat Radio team, is our lead producer, Jay Venables, who is here. <laughs> Round of applause, thank you. Uh, who did a fantastic job being a steward for this show from the audio storytelling side. Uh, on the brazen front, specifically Lucy Woods and Marianne Gonzalez, who is here as well, has done a, I, I don't have the words to describe. Well, uh, they are masters of their craft. Without this, this would all be shambles, and we're so appreciative for all of their stewardship on the brazen side. And to rush through in no particular order from the Goat Rodeo team that I need to give shine to, Max Johnston, Rebecca Seidel, Isabel Kirby McGowan, Kara Schillen, and of course, our fearless leader, who is the real fearless leader, Megan Adelsky. So one more time, please, a round of applause. Uh, before I turn it over uh, to a clip, I just want to say thank you again to the Spy Museum. Thank you to Zach Dorfman for allowing us to be able to tell this story with them. And we are so pleased to have this event here tonight. So we're going to play a clip. I think of no better way to jump into this for me to shut up. So thank you, guys. I wanted to know everything about this case. But I needed to see if anyone else would actually talk to me about it. Other retired FBI agents, CIA officers, federal prosecutors, but above all, the American spy at the center of it. 
I knew his name from decades-old news reports when the story broke. And I learned that he had recently been paroled. So I tried to track him down. I spent countless hours trying to find his phone number, last known residence, signs of life, anything. You see, when you've spent decades in prison, you don't have much of a digital trail. I thought I found the right address for this former spy, but I didn't want to scare him off. So I wrote the man a letter, a real letter, through the post office. Then I waited. Reporting is like that. You send up flares, expecting that many will never be answered. And then, one day, I got a voicemail. Uh, yeah, hi, Zach. Uh, this is Harper. I uh, received your letter uh, a couple days ago, and uh, I, I thought I'd have a chat with you. I'm having a little trouble uh, making up my mind about uh, how we might work together, so I thought maybe a... Uh, a conversation with you over the phone might uh, be helpful in that regard. Talk with you later, perhaps. And we did talk. At first, this former spy wasn't particularly enthusiastic to chat about his time as a Soviet bloc intelligence agent, as a traitor to his country. He was more comfortable reminiscing about his childhood in California and the early Silicon Valley high-tech scene, of which he was a part. But soon enough, over many long and vivid phone calls, the rest came pouring out. And that's how I learned, from his own words, the story of James Derwood Harper, one of America's most notorious Cold War nuclear spies. And I'd sit down at my dining room table with a telephone and a pencil and paper and go to work. <laughs> if I needed some information, I'd call somebody and get it somehow. Right. We have an amazing panel tonight who will take the stage in just a moment. That panel discussion will be moderated by Sharon Weinberger, the National Security and Foreign Policy Editor at the Wall Street Journal. So I think this is going to be an amazing conversation. And Sharon is going to tell you more about who our speakers are and introduce them. But I just want to let you know, we will have time for your questions after their conversation. Bonus points, if your questions are pithy, we love a short question. And we do ask that you use the microphone because we are recording this and we want to capture your question for posterity. So without further ado, over to Sharon and this magnificent panel. Pleasure to, um, to be here this evening. Thanks for joining us. I want to introduce our panelists. Um, we have Ray Batvinis, a historian and educator specializing in the discipline of counterintelligence as a function of statecraft. Thanks for joining us, Ray. Thank you. Um, we've got Vince Houghton, the director of the National Cryptologic Museum and uh, the former historian and curator of the International Spy Museum. We have, this is a great treat, John Gibbons, who headed the U.S. Attorney's prosecution team in the case of James Harper, our sort of um, anti-hero of the evening. That would be great yeah. uh, way to talk. And then we have Zach Dorfman, an intelligence and national security journalist working on an investigative podcast series for Project Brazen. Um, and I just want to say 
uh, briefly that my involvement in this is that I've known Zach since 2017 when I was at Foreign Policy Magazine and my colleague Ben Parker, who I don't think made it this evening, now at the Washington Post, kind of bounded into my office and said, we have this great article about the closure of the Russian consulate in San Francisco and what they were really up to. And so that was about six years ago. Yeah. And since then, Zach and I have worked together. We've been in continuous touch. And nothing makes me happier on any given week than when I get a text from Zach. It's usually, I have the best story. <laughs> um, and so this podcast actually is a story that he told me about, I think it was first maybe three or four years ago, a crazy story about a nuclear spy in Silicon Valley. And what I've always found so interesting about Zach's work is that he looks at the world of espionage and spying that is usually so internally in DC focused and takes it out to Silicon Valley, such an important part of the country in so many ways. So I wanted to start with that perspective. Um, you're profiling James Harper, who in some ways was a Silicon Valley founder. Um, you know, he was a technologist, he started a company what what parallels are there between James Harper and sort of the, the spies that we know of on this side of the country, and where are their differences? Yeah, so um, before I get into that, I just have to also mention that the reason that I uh, wrote James Harper a letter was on Sharon's extraordinary advice to <laughs> take it very slow and like see how um, Harper would, um, would react, and that was one of many um, absolutely critical pieces of advice on national security reporting that Sharon has given me over the years. But um, so I think Harper is a fascinating case because unlike a trained intelligence officer who goes bad like a Hansen or an Ames, you know, he was totally untrained and untested in the world of espionage. He, uh, he was a founder. He was the inventor of the digital stopwatch, which is like one of those details that when you hear it's like actually kind of unbelievable, but it's entirely true. Uh, he told me that he got the idea when he saw his uh, one of his daughters doing timed swim uh, competitions, um, and so he was he was a you know he was kind of present at the creation of of the valley. Um, he worked at firms that became kind of storied, uh, legendary firms, and he was this kind of small time entrepreneur who tried and failed to make it big, and he took that kind of. Entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial approach to spying. But I mean, less charitably, you'd say it was like dilettantish, where he really had no idea what he was doing. He was over his head from the jump. Um, and whereas in cases like Hansen, he took this very methodical approach to doing it, where even the, even the Soviets and the Russians, because he spied before and after the Cold War, uh, didn't know who he was, right? And Harper had no tradecraft. Um, he just had a belief uh, I think an arrogant belief in his own infallibility and his intelligence and how it was he could beat the system. And I think that's emblematic of some of the, the, the baser tendencies in the valley that you see today. And so Harper is archetypal in that way. He stands in for a lot of those tendencies and stuff that you can absolutely think about cases of very prominent folks in the valley today who fit that mold. Not that they would resort to spying, but, but how you can see him as a extreme or edge case of a certain kind of personality pushed to, to an extreme, uh, somebody who almost makes it but never gets quite there and turns to not just criminality but espionage. 
Well, that's actually an interesting starting point. So he was someone, you know, it could have been. He could have been this great figure in the valley, but a bit of um, corruption, alcoholism uh, kind of drove him down a different path. If we look at, I mean, certainly espionage continues on today in Silicon Valley, probably, I assume, more China-driven than Russia-driven. Do you think those same factors could lead someone that there are spies out there in the valley? Oh, most certainly. And I think that kind of informality is part of what you I mean, what's interesting, too, I mean, the Harper case, I mean, he was, the, what led to his downfall was almost traditional in that it was classified information related to national defense. It was like ballistic missile-related uh, documents and technology, like America's nuclear arsenal, which was what made it so damaging. But before he did that, he participated in a ring that was involved in um, illegally exporting kind of dual-use technology to the Eastern Bloc, right? And that stuff wasn't classified. It was just export prohibited. It was like computer chips, I mean, which would be you know antiquated today, but were cutting edge at the time. And I think that kind of intelligence activity goes on. I think economic espionage is a huge part of the Valley. And as you mentioned, it's, it's China, it's the MSS, it's the Russians, it's also a lot of American allies. Um, one thing that's been described over time to me is almost like a softer form of espionage out there because it doesn't deal with people trying to infiltrate state, or DOD, or, you know, or CIA. It's, I mean, you do have military contractors out there, but it's, it's really economic-focused as well. And because of that, there's no doubt that there are significant amounts of people doing intelligence collection in Silicon Valley today, both informally and formally, intelligence officers and people like Harper who are just opportunistic. Um, a question for John, since you were in charge of the prosecution. When a case like this comes to you, is it, was it a sort of like, oh my God moment? We've never seen something like this before? Or is it like, oh yeah, another one of these spies? I mean, what was your reaction? No, it, it's, uh, I'd been a prosecutor for quite a while, tried my share of cases, my share of whitewater cases. Uh, and you get a call on the funny telephone from uh, the man in Washington, John Martin. I had to go do it in those days. We didn't have that sort of a secure phone to communicate on, so I had to go down to the bureau and get on a secure phone. And uh, in his own way, John Martin said, John, you don't know me. Uh, I'm at the internal security section. You've got a spy in your town. You know, and I said, well, okay. Uh, so then I began to meet, and as some folks may or may not know, the FBI is one side's the all criminal division doing what they do, and the other side uh, does uh, investigative work in the, uh, F in the uh, intelligence world, uh, the FCI, Foreign Counterintelligence. Uh, I knew some of those folks personally from playing softball and things like that, but I didn't know anything about their cases. Uh, so then I turned to those agents uh, and I became deeply involved, 10-hour uh, days, with my colleague Buck Farmer, who unfortunately was going to be here, but he had to go back. And Buck and I just burrowed in on this case uh, and a whole new world to us. We had the clearances, uh, but surely not the knowledge. And we began to work with the Bureau and it's a very special group of agents that had been collected into San Francisco because the Soviet Union slash Russia had established a consulate uh, in San Francisco. And I must say, 
Zach has seen it when they were dismantling things, when they were thrown out of the country. And I don't know who allowed them to, to take this building. Don't forget we had a nuclear uh, and non-nuclear submarine base that they would come in through the bay, bay under, the, under the Golden Gate Bridge and go up to where they were based. These folks had a seven-story building. I think the top five stories were electronics, and they had a view of the bay, of all those subs going in and out. And whoever allowed them to get that building should have been prosecuted himself or herself. It's just the stupidest thing you can imagine. But they were very, very busy. But then again, other agencies of the Eastern group, the Polish, uh, were very active and loosey-goosey. Um, we were very close, on, from, as I learned to understand, uh, on top of some of the Russian spies who were out doing things, meeting with people. Uh, they were limited on how, how far they could go uh, within the area. Um, but the Poles weren't, so they were, they were active. And this, this group, headed by Bill Kinane, who uh, was a hero. Why was he a hero? He uh, headed the, the group, but he is an old, old school guy from Chicago, came out. Uh, he knew uh, the uh, mole we had in Polish intelligence. Uh, thing came across his desk and said, holy Toledo. Uh, we, got, we got a spy. And they, they, were, they were blind. They had no idea. He was discovered at a, uh, not discovered, but he was, came to be through a, a mole we had in British and, and Polish intelligence who attended a, uh, a, a party in uh, Warsaw. And he contacted his uh, CIA contact and told him what he had heard at this party, or a fellow, Zach has written all about it, uh, was, was uh, given a, an award from the KGB, and the head of the KGB came into uh, Warsaw to give this award. It was that important. So quick like a bunny, he got in touch with his contact in the CIA, and then it got to San Francisco. And that's when we began a federal investigation with, um, I can't say enough, these extraordinary men and women of the Bureau of that, that era. They were really great people to know and to work with, and they did an incredible job. We, Buck Farmer, who unfortunately is not here, he and I appeared up on the case uh, with John Martin, and John Martin uh, was an incredible support. I mean, he ran that section for a number of years. Um, Vince, as someone who's looked at the, the history of spying, one of the things I'm always struck by in some of these cases, you know, with, with James Harper, it was sometimes the, the bungling, like sort of like play acting spying. And I was reminded of the recent case of the, um, the couple in Annapolis who, you know, hid, I think, was it a, a thumb drive and a peanut butter sandwich? So how much are, when, when sort of, I don't know what you call them, civilians get involved in spying, are they, are they reading James Bond books? Where are they getting, like, how do they decide what they're going to do to stay super secret? You'd be surprised how much pop culture can, can affect people who are, uh, even those that are trained. I mean, I mean they, they're used to, there's stories all the time from the CIA of the 60s and 70s where a new Bond movie would come out and the director would stomp down the director of science and technology and be like, 
I saw this in the movie. Can we do that? And usually the, the DS and T would be like, yeah, we've been doing that for 15 years. It's okay. It's, you know, or do we really think we can make an invisible car? Um, but for the most part, when you're looking to recruit someone, you're looking solely for someone with access, right? The Hansons and the Ames are somewhat unique in the fact that they were part of a, a, an intelligence organization themselves, right? Most of the people you're recruiting are not trained in espionage. And so part of the job of the handler is to teach the tradecraft, right? You know, we, we, Peter Ernest, who is our, or our wonderful former uh, executive director here, spent 36 years as an operations officer at CIA, and he always talked about, like, some of these people just had no idea. And part of it was holding their hand and saying, don't do this, don't do this, you know, don't make these ridiculous mistakes you see in the movies. We'll start slow, we'll start simple, and we'll learn as we go. And so, to many degrees, when you see a bumbling, stumbling fool of an agent, that's the fault of the handler in many respects. And, and, and KGB took pride in being able to turn average everyday civilians into good spies. Uh, and they had a lot of history, especially in the science and technology field, but going back to the 1920s, where they, in, they completely infiltrated German industrial factories and foundation. Obviously, the nuclear spies uh, in the Manhattan Project in the 40s, the Neen engine stolen from Rolls-Royce right under the nose of the British, which was in the MiG-15, and then going all the way up to Silicon Valley, which, um, I mean, you can maybe perhaps film in more on this. The idea of Silicon Valley was probably, if not certainly, the second most important city or area to Washington for the KGB in the late 70s and the early 80s because at that point, everything was about computer technology. And the Soviets were at least a decade, maybe two decades behind us in computer technology. So other than getting in the Washington bureaucracy, Silicon Valley was as important as it got. You're not recruiting trained officers in Silicon Valley. You're recruiting the Steve Jobs types of the world who are gonna be kind of goofy. They're not, they're not James Bond, right? They're, they're not jumping out of airplanes with a martini in one hand and a stupidly named blonde in the other one. They're goofy tech guys. And so you have to expect this. And I think that's where this is an outlier and a fun outlier in that you get caught because you're bad at it. We're the ones that are really good at it. Those are the ones that don't get caught. And so a lot of the ones that were from this area of the world or from the Midwest or the nuclear spies who had no real training in this are the ones we catch because they do something dumb. Um, you know, the Hansons, the Ames usually get caught to get bored almost in the end. Yeah. So related to that point, a question for Ray. You know, one of the things that amazed me listening to the podcast, you know, we're in the height of the Cold War and he's like making these trips to Warsaw to meet with his handlers. And, you know, I guess now we think of sort of, you're, you're tracked ubiquitously, but would the FBI have been tracking people making these odd trips to Warsaw? I mean, how did, how were they looking for, for potential spies in those days? Well, in, pardon me, in answer to your first question, the answer is no. I mean, they, a very dear friend of mine, when he talked about uh, agents, what the Russians really wanted him to be is basically as low as the water and as quiet as the grass. They wanted him to blend right into the society. If we're giving you quite a bit of money, don't exhibit any kind of conspicuous consumption that is going to raise red flags among your colleagues, among the security people. They're going to wonder what's going on. 
when it comes to a trip like that, every year, every two years, the KGB or the Poles would want to meet this guy at, in Vienna, maybe in Berlin, uh, maybe in India, where they're not being closely watched. But they would do it on their vacation. They wouldn't do it at a time that, again, would raise red flags. So that is not unusual. And if they had to fill out a report when they got back, yes, I went to Vienna, I had to get away just to visit. It wouldn't raise any red flags among the security staff at the company, which would force them to say, well, let's go to the FBI, there's something suspicious. And they really wouldn't even do an after-trip report. That really wasn't in the protocol. That has to do with your rights as a citizen. If I want to, if I work for TRW or if I work for a major nuclear corporation uh, and I decided I want to take a two-week trip to Vienna or Austria just to visit it, no one would even raise an eyebrow. Well, he also wasn't cleared, yeah. right? So if I go anywhere because I have clearance, as I work for NSA, I have to get permission, and then when I come back, I have to do a trip report, and I have to say, did anyone approach me or talk to me who I didn't know? But if I don't have clearance, I can go anywhere I want to, really. And one of the interesting things, I think, in this case especially, is you talked about why wouldn't they be suspicious, and they probably should have been, because compartmentalization at this point really is what caused this to happen. The lights were blinking red in the late 70s and early 80s when it came to scientific and technological intelligence. We knew through an agent in place that, that came to the French and gave it to the United States, a guy named Vladimir Vetrov, we knew that the Soviets had created an entire new division within the KGB to steal our scientific and technological intelligence. Right? It, uh, the Directorate T, Line X, these were people whose job it was to come steal our scientific stuff. And they really targeted Silicon Valley. And we, so we should have known this was happening. We knew their wish list. And I mean, there's wonderful stories that can go into the idea of, you know, we would sell them stuff that didn't work and we'd sell them things like their entire space shuttle was based on a NASA program that was deemed to be not good and we'd sell them things that blew up their pipeline and all this crazy stuff. So by 1982, 83, we had years of experience watching the KGB try to steal our technology. And so not seeing this coming was because people weren't talking to each other, because you had, like you said, you hadn't really, you were an important lawyer on, on the West Coast, but you hadn't dealt with any of these kind of concerns before. Sure. You hadn't been briefed sure. that Silicon Valley was a major target of the KGB. That should have been a weekly conversation that Washington had with you. And so it's a failure at the highest levels of DC that the second most important target in the entire country did not have just warning signs in the San Francisco office and everywhere else. One of the really, uh, there's two aspects of this case that really fascinated me. One is the focus on Silicon Valley, but the other is that it wasn't, he wasn't spying for the KGB, it was for Polish intelligence. And I was kind of learned from this, so it, it almost like was Polish intelligence was like, the little brother trying to impress their big brother, like we got one, because it, this wasn't being used for Poland, it was for the Soviet Union. So can you talk about that, why it was Polish intelligence that recruited him and what their role was with the KGB? So, you know, as, as John talked about a little bit before too, um, you know, the Eastern Bloc services, the Warsaw Pact services had more room for maneuver 
in the U.S. and the KGB. There's only, you know, resources are limited, and the Bureau in San Francisco did a really good job of covering KGB offices under diplomatic cover, um, really following them around, ensuring, and, and there were folks who they knew were science and technology officers, and they were, they were on them, you know. But the, the East Block services just didn't get as much attention. They were, they were the little brothers, as you said. They, they were just, there was more economic activity between the U.S. and some of the Eastern Bloc countries. So there was, there was more kind of like permitted interactions. And they were viewed as, I guess, like almost like a B team in a way. I mean, the East Germans, not really a B team. They were kind of an A team in their own right. But some of the other subordinate services were looked at um, as like less professional. But the polls showed themselves to be incredibly adept at economic espionage. I mean, there was another very famous case in Los Angeles that occurred a few years before that where um, a, you know, a, a, a Polish intelligence officer, an illegal, so he was, he was not under diplomatic cover named Marian Zakarski, uh, managed to steal some very important defense-related secrets in the aerospace industry in, um, in Los Angeles. And um, Harper had an, he had an intuitive sense that, that it, was, it was less dangerous for him to go to the polls than to you know, throw a note over the you know, consulate wall or something like that. Um, so he already had had connections through his Silicon Valley circles to, um, to some folks that were involved in some of that, um, that kind of, I don't want to call it spine, it's like spine adjacent, which is, uh, you know, providing that, um, that, that export controlled or export prohibitive, you know, dual use technology. So through those folks, he, he started he got to a senior Polish intelligence officer. Now, what's interesting is that he was fully witting of who this was going to. He knew the Poles had no interest or use for you know, anti-ballistic missile technology stuff and nuclear secrets. He knew that the Poles did not care about Minuteman missiles, right? He even told, because you know, um, the Poles now, of course, are one of America's closest allies in Europe, and they've opened up their communist era archives, which is unbelievably rich. And we managed to get the files from this case. And so there's, there's stuff that, you know, it, it provided their perspective. And one thing was there was, you know, there was memorandums of conversations between Harper and his Polish intelligence handlers. And, you know, his handler is writing up and report, and he basically says, you know, Harper says he knows this is for the KGB. He doesn't want to work with them. He knows the money's coming from them. And then there were these conversations where the Poles were, were haggling with the KGB over who was going to pay for what with the, eventually the KGB paying all of it. So it was very much, I mean, they were acting almost as a cutout for, for the KGB. So all of this was being mainlined in Moscow when he started bringing those documents to Warsaw the KGB literally flew in 20 experts overnight, and they spent all night going through it. So it, it wasn't even, I mean, a fig leaf would be generous to call like the real distinction, but it provided, it provided Harper and other folks uh, in the US in those years um, a way to get stuff to the Soviet Union. It was like a force multiplier for them um, without actually dealing with the KGB itself. Well, sort of a related question for John, because one of the things that's so amazing about the Harper case is that, I don't want to give away too many spoilers from the podcast, it's a great listen, but the way he gets caught isn't, I think, fair to say, by investigative sleuth work. It's he basically tries to sort of double cross, and he wants to become an informant, essentially, right? So I guess 
the, the question is, do you think someone like him would have been caught otherwise if he had just spied for a while and then receded into the background? Are there other James Harpers that perhaps are out there and never got caught? I, th I think there probably are, but <clears throat> there are certain moves that he made that he, he basically bumped into assets of the Bureau, and Bureau, the Bureau became, at one point, they said, you know, let's take a chance. There was one fellow who was beginning to uh, come up, and they weren't sure, but they, they went and interviewed him in, in an interesting way, and, and they got a name. And that was really the beginning of focusing on, on Harper, because they, they really didn't have an idea. But at the same time, Silicon Valley, as my colleague here said, it's still wide open, still wide open. And some people really don't think of national security as, as we'd like them to. Uh, it's, it's really an investment game, and how can I be here for a year, year or so and have uh, some venture capital people come in and make me a very rich person? Uh, and if you're approached, and I've been around some of that way back when, uh, where they were very, very uh, con contrary to the pitch. Uh, they didn't want any part of the Bureau or the agency. Um, but uh, there are others who have been very cooperative. But it's a whole, it's a different world. It's changed since I was down there doing stuff after this case. But it's uh, people there want to make money. And they're all patriots. but. Uh, if they can make a deal that sells their product, it'll, it'll go. You know, if it's something that's very high technology in, in the defense uh, intelligence area, of, of course, there's, there's a difference, and they're being scrutinized, that's for sure, and they have their own people internally. There, a case, there, was, a, there was a case, I don't know the full details, but there was a case involving a U.S. Army enlisted man who walked into the uh, U.S. Embassy in Bangkok, Thailand, and he had uh, crypto information. And the individual who received him made a terrible mistake, handled it terribly. He took the information, and uh, the guy said, I need $5,000. For what reason? I don't know. Gambling, whatever. And he made the mistake of giving the guy the $5,000. And he made the further mistake of not establishing a pre-contact plan. So he sent the information back to Moscow, and Moscow ordered him to find this guy. And they never found him. He just wanted one time to get, uh, get paid, and then that's it. And he never, ever went back. And the other classic example is the example of Robert Lipka. Robert Lipka was a, was a very low-level private in the Army who, at the start of the Vietnam War, who by pure happenstance wound up at the National Security Agency for two years. And he uh, met a girl, got her pregnant, had no money. So what does he start doing? He starts giving information to the Russians. And he was so important to them that they met him about 16 or 17 times every year. That never happens. Wow. That never happens. And they met him for two years. And at the end of the two years, they urged him to stay at NSA. And he says, nope, I'm getting out. And it was only 25 years later when Vasily Matrokin came out with the Matrokin archives that they, that they uh, uh, found him. And then we went to his wife, his ex-wife by now. She had remarried. Basically, she was just a, basically a child. She was an 18 or 19-year-old. She had a baby by this guy. 
And when the agents walked in to talk to her, she met him at the door. She says, I can't, can only meet you on Wednesday because that's the day I'm off and my husband's not here. So she met with him and they walked in and they gave her a BS story about him involved in some money fraud. And she looked at him and she goes, now, I've been waiting for you for 25 years. <laughs> that's a true story because the agent was on a wonderful wow. guy named Dan Brennan. So we got down and dirty with her right off the bat, and she turned out to be a wonderful cooperating witness for us. So yeah, there are, there are instances, countless instances, where they'll walk in, they'll get a one hit because they need to get healthy financially and not come in. But it creates for the KGB and the, and the polls, and it's a nightmare scenario for them. Well, that's an interesting thought, because one of the things is that um, James Harper is not a particularly sympathetic character, I think it's fair to say. Yes. Um, but, um, but you spent a lot of time in his final year, two years, talking to him. And there, there was one moment when he's, he's sort of exiled from California. He wants to go back. It's, it's where he was from. And he's in Arkansas. Uh, in Arkansas. Yeah. And before he dies, and he never quite makes it. But... Other than that, I had a hard time feeling sympathy for him. I mean, when you spoke to him, he's out of prison. Um, he's reflective. I mean, he wants to talk about what he did, and he talks very openly. Does he have regrets? He was reflective, but I would never really consider him remorseful. Um, and that was, that was a really odd thing. And, and I, you know... On a, on a human level, you feel empathy for somebody, right? I mean, he was ill. He was isolated. His life, I mean, his life had been destroyed. I mean, he did a terrible, terrible thing, and he spent 33 years in federal prison for it. He lost a, a very substantial part of his life. Um, and when he got out, he, the world had just moved completely past him. Um, and he was quite open about his life, and then got very, very engaged in retelling the story of his espionage to me. But it was interesting because I, I, I would try to tease that out sometimes, uh, a sense of like, well, do you, do you look back on it? Would you do anything different? Do you feel, you know, like, and it, I never got a satisfactory answer. And really the only conclusion that one could draw would be at best that he was, he, he, he was amoral. I mean, if not just extraordinarily immoral, but he just did not, he did not respond the way that you would think a, a normal person, would. like his psychological profile, I think would be a great study for profilers, like bureau profilers in the future, because there's just a lack of like, there's a lack of moral boundaries there. Um, and I think he approached his whole life that way, both, I mean, his personal life, his professional life, his espionage, I mean, and to see that you could go through multiple decades in federal prison and come out and not even admit to somebody who, I mean, I was trying to be as sympathetic as one could be, that like he did something terrible, you know, and ruinous, both for his country and for his family and for himself. I mean, that was, uh, that was hard to swallow. Great. I want to maybe open it up to audience questions. Um, if I, I might add, oh, yeah, yeah, and just meeting with him when we did, the guy had absolutely no conscience. He, he had none. 
He was almost proud of what he got away with. Uh, he was a total jackal. Is that typical, would you say, of these cases? I really don't know, but uh, I don't think so. I think some people have a chip on their shoulder, whether it's one way or another, whether it's through Russia, Soviet Union, or China. I mean, it's in San Francisco now, there, there's a Chinese consulate that's just as bigger than this building. I don't know why it's still there, but they're just vacuum cleaning the entire Silicon Valley. And I don't know why our government hasn't said hello. It's time to go home. But it's, you know, and again, with this, the, the Soviet-Russian consulate, with the view of the bay and the submarines going in and out, that we knew, uh, I used to get stuff myself at Radio Shack. Half the time, there were technicians from the, from the consulate buying stuff in Radio Shack. <laughs> you know, I was, and I'd call my buds at the FBI. That's the problem. They said, well, we know, you know. Anyway. And I'll just add really quickly, just like, it's not as grand as the, as the Russian consulate was, but, but the Chinese consulate is also on a prominent hill, yeah. uh, which for signals collection is it's wonderful. Just, in, and, and in San Francisco, those hills are pretty, pretty serious. So if so. they're not hanging out in Radio Shack since it doesn't yeah. exist, where yeah. do you think they're going? They probably own it. Yeah, so. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, they're, I mean, economic, espionage, political stuff. Uh, I've written about some, yeah, I mean, political cases. Um, and then also, they're extraordinarily interested in the activities of the, the Chinese-American community in San Francisco right. because they recognize it as a powerful um, and very old um, community. Um, and there's a, there's a pervasive fear about um, uh, a dissonant movements originating in places like San Francisco. So yeah. they're, they're extraordinarily sensitive to that. In the late 80s, I think it was the late 80s, the CIA and the FBI and NSA and other agencies uh, funded a project. It was called Project Slammer. And Project Slammer uh, called for uh, specialists from these agencies and from the FBI's Behavioral Sciences Unit to uh, do a sort of a parallel project that they did with serial killers. What drives them? Why are they serial killers? Going just to this issue about remorse and uh, their worldview and their outlook. And they did this and uh, came up with some interesting findings. And I think, don't quote me on this, but I think you as a private citizen could go on the Internet because a lot of this has been made public since then. So you uh, can go on and actually uh, review this and... Uh, uh, find their conclusions and get some insights into uh, into what they found. And the judge just closed by saying, I don't think there was one spy who said, I don't want to talk or I refuse to talk. <laughs> they all wanted to talk. So we These were skilled so. interrogators who just didn't come in with a chip on their shoulder. They just said, let's talk. And then bleh, they started talking about everything, filled out questionnaires, because they had a lot of time on their hands. Yeah. So they were willing to see these guys come back and these women come back and talk to them. So it might be something you'd find interesting offline if you wish to do so. The, the, the Spy Museum has a podcast called Spycast where about four years ago, um, the, the guest was the, the now former chief psychologist at CIA, Ursula Wilder, who wrote two of the most important papers that were just recently declassified on essentially the psychological underpinnings of not only spies, but the other one was also terrorism. And she was the one that wrote that final report for CIA. And she can go 
you can read it online. It's completely unclassified. Doc Hansen, Ames, all all the the, the people you know and hate uh, were all psychoanalyzed essentially by this group, uh, and that is now completely uh, declassified. We've been very loving to each other up here because we're all friends. I want to gently push back a little bit sure. on uh, a term you said again and again in the, in the podcast as well, and that's economic espionage. Mm -hmm. I think it's tricky using that term because it, it bifurcates uh, economic things about companies and, and profit margins and, and competitiveness with things like what the Soviets were after, now the Chinese are after, like supercomputer technology. That You can sound like it's economic if you're going after Cray or IBM, but supercomputers are used for missile testing. Supercomputers are used for nuclear weapons analysis, are used for encryption and decryption. Uh, these are not things that are technically economic espionage. These are as national security as if you stole the plans for the F-22. These are our military or as intelligence related as if you stole secrets from CIA. Uh, and, and so I think that there's an interesting dynamic at play here where, sure, if you're targeting Starbucks for their new dark roast recipe because you want to undercut them with a new company, that's economic espionage. If you're infiltrating Cray Microsystems because you want to build a supercomputer to break American codes, that doesn't necessarily qualify as economic espionage. So I think what he's doing more than anything else is not doesn't really fall in that definition because everything, I mean, when we banned not only atmospheric testing, but we do a moratorium on underground testing of nuclear weapons, everything to understand how nuclear weapons work had to be done on computers and on supercomputers, right? So the Soviets hadn't tested a nuclear weapon near the United States in, at that point, more than a decade. And so everything had to be done using these computers that the Soviets couldn't build themselves. And so Silicon Valley became ground zero for, I would say, defense espionage yeah. because they couldn't do it otherwise. I mean, one of the reasons they collapsed in the 1980s is that they realized their computer industry can't come close to ours. And they try to catch up, but they can't outspend us because we're so far ahead of them. And so that's where I have a little bit of an issue with, with kind of, as you hear economic espionage, it's like, oh, that's not that bad. Well, it's that bad what they're trying to do. Not necessarily, I mean, Harper is kind of a moderate level, but some of the ones that are going after, you talk about the Chinese today, you know, going after microchips that are being used in the F-35, that's not an economic espionage, that is national security. Yeah, if I may, just for a minute, I mean, I, I'm, there's a violent agreement with you. Uh, I think uh, Harper's case was about, as I mean, it was national defense information, I mean, it was about, it was about nuclear weapons and anti, you know, ballistic missile technology. Um, it's always been difficult, though, for in the Valley, where stuff has or may have down the line dual use applications, but they don't have them yet, and it's hard to qualify it as defense related because it's not, it's not classified as such. And so um, there have definitely been efforts, and, and the, the work of the Bureau in San Francisco was integral to the, the passage of the 1986 Economic Espionage Act because they recognized there was like a specific subcategory of espionage that didn't fit into those like East Coast um, uh, parameters. Uh, you know, there was a, and some of them are just purely economic um, on behalf of a state. And a really good case of the last decade or so was um, 
two, um, two people in the valley stole the proprietary formula that DuPont uses to make the color white, white. Um, but they were, they were using, they were selling it to a state-owned company in China. So they were, they were committing like pure economic espionage on behalf of a, of a, of a hostile state. Um, but there's so many edge cases like the ones you're talking about. Um, and I think that it's, it's, the Bureau has a tough, it's a tough job because it's, it's difficult, and this is a, this is a conversation, a poll of conversation, but it's difficult to convince some of those companies about the national security implications of the work that they're doing right. and the larger geopolitical environment in which it, they're operating, because they don't see it that way. You know, mm -hmm. they're looking to like, they're looking to get big or sell. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, uh, by no means was I trying to, um, to make it seem like a lesser case. It's just a, a more complex one and one that I think has been difficult for, for uh, legislators, policymakers, counterintelligence yeah. folks. Um, but I mean, that's the bread and butter of the CI work in, in the Valley. Yeah. yeah. Well, and we had, a, a, right shortly after this, uh, in our office in the Northern District of California, we had the Hitachi matter, which was huge. Hitachi was, was stealing IBM blind. And a security officer from IBM came in, and we Bureau worked a very intricate and successful undercover operation. Uh, meanwhile, <laughs> IBM was in the side just uh, sharpening their axe when the, the case came down, and uh, the lawyers at Cravath, Swain, and Moore were ready to go. Uh, we indicted a number of people. Uh, we, uh, undercover, we had undercover tapes of very high Hitachi executives talking about what they were stealing from IBM and why they wanted it. Uh, so again, to, to, to say, to compliment what you're saying, uh, and it was espionage, it was, quote, corporate espionage. Um, but at the same time, in Silicon Valley, we have exactly, you know, what you're saying, and I don't think it's being, I don't think it's being pursued in the way it should be. Um, and maybe I'll make a political comment. I don't think the Bureau right now uh, has their eye on the ball, as far as I'm concerned, in Silicon Valley. I don't think their leadership knows about it, nor does the Attorney General's office. They're worried about kids at schools and what they're being taught. Uh, uh, anyway, I won't go there. But, uh. <laughs> so, um, audience questions, they go up to there, right? Oh, I thought I would jump in. I wanted to ask Ray, as former FBI and as a historian, what was the reputation of this case, if there was one, at the FBI? Was it known? How did people feel about it? I can't answer that directly, but this was part of a group of cases that were going on at that time. Before 1975, the number of cases that, and I don't have specifics, but I'm pretty close. The number of cases, let's say between 1951 and 1976, were flatlined at about one and two. And the reason for that were many, but key to the fact was that we couldn't, the Department of Justice couldn't prosecute these cases. And the reason for that was because uh, the... Uh, because of the in, because first of all, almost 99% of these cases come from exactly how Harper developed. There was an, a, a source inside. And there was no way that the Justice Department 
could take these cases to court and protect the identity of that source. Because the source may not have been somebody that we recruited, somebody that the agency recruited, but we may have gotten this from the French service. So that was the high jump. And it was only in uh, 19, 1978, the department, uh, excuse me, the uh, President Carter, and he's a hero in this. People don't really realize but what a hero he is in terms of advancing the ability of the counterintelligence community to do their job. But he passed, he, he signed the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act into law. The following year, he signed the, uh, the uh, uh, Classified Information Procedures Act, which allowed uh, John to do his job. So as a result of that, these cases began to spiral. You had the Campilles case. You had the David Henry Barnett case. You had the Falcon and the Snowman you had uh, out in California. The same case, I'll bet it's the same source we're talking about. For Harper, you had the William Holden Bell case yep. out in same Los source. Angeles. He's yep. recruited by a poll. And I think you were right, because there's a tendency on our part to look down there or nose. I don't mean that. I don't mean that in a pejorative way. But the polls were outstanding. The polls were probably the finest service, better than the KGB. They were an outstanding service. And it was and Marion Zaharsky, who ran a company in Los Angeles, who recruited them. But we would have never been able to prosecute any of these cases had it not been for legislation that was passed in the late 70s. And as a result, you have all of these cases. And it was a tremendous boost to the Bureau. There are a lot of reasons we can get into it. And it was a tremendous boost to public awareness, public policy when it came to our understanding of the threat that the Russians and the Eastern Bloc was posing to us. The, the Carter administration also focused counterintelligence on science and technology, which had right. never been done before. Uh, Carter was a nuclear engineer. Yeah. He understood the importance of tech transfer. Uh, the, the administrations before him going all the way back to Truman kind of glossed over it. Uh, there was a COCOM, which is the Coordinating Committee for Export Control, that was put into place right at the beginning of the Cold War. That's all people really focused on. But when Carter becomes president, he says, we've got to really think about these high technologies, especially understanding Silicon Valley and how far ahead it was versus the Soviets. We have to start paying attention to the threat of espionage focusing on science and technology. The Reagan administration, like other things, picked up what Carter was doing and took it to the next level. Um, but that's what leads to a lot of these prosecutions as well, is that the CI components, not just of the FBI, but there's an adage that says the best way to catch a spy is another spy. So the people we were recruiting ourselves overseas, whether in Poland or the Soviet Union and other places, were also passing us back information about the KGB targeting science and technology. So we had much more awareness of what was coming our way uh, because of Jimmy Carter's administration and then the later on Ronald Reagan's. It, it's also important for Americans to understand that this grew out of Watergate. This completely grew out of Watergate because for the, the previous century, the Congress said we're hands off when it comes to intelligence. It's hands off when it comes to counterintelligence. This is a purely executive function. When Watergate occurred and the American public learned how Nixon was trying to subvert the intelligence community, not to mention the uh, 
the uh, ill deeds committed by the FBI, illegal wiretaps, illegal microphones, CIA, illegal surveillance, NSA, illegal monitoring of overseas conversations, what do they create? They say, we are now going to take an active role in monitoring the activities of the intelligence community. Well, of course, the intelligence community, their hair caught fire when they heard this. The reality was they formed the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence and the House Permanent Select Intelligence Committee. And now Congress is saying, what can we do for you? And that was became the gateway for the intelligence community to say, well, we can't prosecute, we can't even invest, investigate this. So it was Congress that was really the, uh, the, the one that germinated these, these bills, and it was uh, Carter who signed them. So we owe a great deal of credit to the Congress at that particular time and to the Carter administration. And I don't mean to get back to your point, but the, the Harper case didn't mean much to me. But it meant a lot in the larger sense of, of this because you had all of these cases going down at the same time. So it was a really a, a mother load. And it, I'll just end by saying it, it shot a, 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 a nuclear round into the arsenal of the KGB. They just were rocking back on their heels. It had a devastating effect on them. The great thing about it from what you were able to do, is if you Google this, there are articles from all over the country about their arrest and the story behind this. And they can't say, they can't even talk about really what was stolen and what was given over, but there's, from that time period, articles from the New York Times, all the way over San Francisco Chronicle, the Miami Herald, have articles about the Silicon Valley spy who had just been arrested and prosecuted. Uh, and that, more than anything else, shows that it's a kind of a shot across the bow to anyone else who's thinking about doing this themselves. And I think that was purposeful. I can't speak for you. You can speak for this. About how much did you want that word to get out, especially in the early 1980s, moving into the time when you're starting to catch these guys, about don't do this because this is what's going to happen to you. Were, you. were you actively thinking about making sure the American public and any potential spies out there heard about getting the, basically he got the book thrown at him. Well, in, indeed, uh, Silicon Valley, that's yeah. for sure. Uh, we, we made a point of, of speaking down there, uh, talking about the case, talking about the consequences. It had some impact, uh, but still Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley. It's a different world. It really is. It's an amazing place. Uh, but I, you know, the, as I to get back to the, the case itself and the, the ramifications and, and the agents who work this case, who had come from Chicago and other places, and they're older, experienced agents, because the Bureau knew they needed it, because the Soviet uh, Russian embassy opened in, what, 1970-something, 75, I think, in San Francisco, and, and it was positioned, et cetera, et cetera. And Bill Kinane, who is a hero, uh, You've met Bill and spent oh, yeah. time. He was with the him. East Block uh, squad leader, so he yeah. led the, the investigation on that. And yeah, just a, he's a, a, yeah. an Irish kid from, not a kid, he's passed away now, but from uh, Brooklyn. And he and I, once I got into that fold, uh, I was born in Brooklyn, grew up in Brooklyn, so he and I had a connection. And we would work hours with Buck Farmer and myself and his, his squad. But to, to put this case together to prosecute, 
and there were some real problems. And then we, we went and met with um, the fellow who the agency got out of, out of I guess, uh, Sweden with his family. And we met with him and we went through this whole dance of putting bags on our heads and driving around and uh, myself and Buck Farmer. And there we were, we met with this gentleman. He was quite a lovely gentleman um, and he was terrified. And he told us st several stories about people like him or other people in other services in the Eastern Bloc who had cooperated and wound up here in the United States. And guess who got to him? the Soviets and killed them. Uh, that went on. And uh, there was a particular home that they, the Poles, uh, we found out later on, uh, thought he and his family were living in this particular house in New Jersey. And they went and surveilled it, the Poles. Uh, thank God the family wasn't there. But we found that out later on through your, your intelligence network. Um, but I mean, it, it gets bigger and bigger, and you don't understand exactly the ramifications of, of what's going on with, with these, these services. But, you know, we know, especially the, the Chinese services are, number one, very, very good at what they do. Uh, and the, the Russians have been good at it. They have their own problems now. But uh, here we are. Uh, we have a question from the audience yeah, here. Thank, uh, thank you very much. And I guess part of the good news is, I think most of Radio Shack has gone bankrupt, so <laughs> we're safer than we were. You know, it seems like despite all this, the complex uh, psychological analysis of these folks, money is usually a consistent theme. Now, why they need that money varies, you know. Uh, either they're drinking or, you know, they have a secret life, a second life, a mistress, all the rest of it. I'm wondering about the money factor in this fellow's case. What kind of money did he get out of this? And what do you feel he, he felt driven to get money that way for? I mean, I think... It Right. I, I think you've, you've very uh, smartly identified that although there is an interesting profile of James Harper, he was also a man totally driven by avarice. I mean, fundamentally, he was an incredibly greedy man, and he had, uh, he had, he had an excess of vices, right? I mean, he was a gambler. He was a, he was a cheat. Uh, he was a drunk. He, I mean, he, if, he, if there was a vice, he pretty much, he pretty much had it. And he, 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 didn't, have, he didn't have a steady job at, at the time he started spying, but he, he wasn't in great economic distress at the, at the very beginning. He legitimately just said, I want to spy for my retirement. He viewed it as his 401k, basically. And he demanded, yeah, who among us? And he demanded, he demanded um, a million dollars from the KGB, which I think is a little over four million dollars in, in, in today's dollars, which is an extraordinary sum. I mean, and and of course the KGB didn't want to pay any of that. They didn't want to pay him that much, period. But they definitely didn't want to pay him that much uh, in one fell swoop, which was his. I mean, he wanted the windfall. He wanted the windfall, but instead of $15,000, he wanted a million dollars. You know, he really wanted to get paid. And so there was this, 
battle that was ongoing between him and the Poles where he would consistently ask for large sums of money and they would dribble out much smaller sums to keep him reeled in, basically. Um, but unquestionably, he was, he, was driven by, he was driven by greed and it was almost like, um, it, it was almost like he, he was intoxicated by it. Um, and that's, that is 100% why he spied. If you want to think about him ideologically, it would be as a kind of like, Entrepreneurial hypercapitalism, you know, steroids type type figure. But um, no, I mean, he was not. He didn't. I truly don't. He he did not care about Soviets. He didn't care about America. He didn't care about anybody but himself. So he was purely in it for the money and purely in it for his his own remuneration. There's an ego trip element to this. Oh, also. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. I think it's yeah. important to point that. I mean, yes. the idea of money, yes, but the, the because he had failed, because his colleagues had succeeded where he hadn't, this was his chance to kind of stick it to him. And you see that, I mean, people like Bob Hansen took a ton of money, but for Hansen it was ego, mm. right? I mean, people like, even those that were paid a lot and didn't spend a dime of it, there's, there's reasons that yes, they wanted money, but there was an overriding factor. And with his case, with Harper's case, you can't just talk about the money there because it was a I'll show you mm. environment there as well. And I, I, I'm not sure you, you said immediately, I guess, that, that, was his, that was his personality. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, when we interviewed him, uh, Buck Farmer and I wish he, wish he was here, um, it was fascinating to two prosecutors who were experienced uh, to sit down with this fella. And you, you could just see it was his ego that was pushing, and he wanted to sort of impress us, show us how smart he was, what a great spy he was. And then in one or two paragraphs, Buck Farmer, who was my colleague, put him down in about 30 seconds and told him what he thought of him in a nice way with a few big words. And then he started to cooperate a little bit more. Uh, and... Uh, he was just a total sociopath. There's no doubt about it. Uh, and, he, and he enjoyed it. I think he really enjoyed it. Um, there he was in Arkansas, and I'm glad he stayed there. But, uh, uh, thank you. It's been absolutely fascinating. Look forward to hearing it. Thank you very much. Um, can you talk a little bit about the playbook that the Poles or the, or the Russians would use in Silicon Valley. So would they, you know, it made it sound a little bit like, I don't know if Harper went to them or they found Harper. Did they fan out across the valley and did they figure out, did you go and find people at bars or in church or how did, or were they largely passive until someone approached them and then reeled them in? Was there any outward projection to try and find good prospects um, across the valley? The, uh, I, I'll just, Kick it off. In the uh, case of William Holden Bell, Bell was an engineer who had an ugly divorce. He was paying a lot of, lot of, lot of alimony. He was being marginalized as huge aircraft. He had married a woman about 20 years younger who was an airline stewardess. So he had a, and he lost his son about two years earlier in a terrible fire while he was camping in Mexico. And in this particular case, Zaharsky was an intelligence officer, ran this purely covered business. They lived in the same apartment building. And uh, they would have parties. And he just happened to met him, happened to met him, 
happened to meet him at one of the parties, and they struck up a conversation. And um, Zaharsky, being a professional intelligence officer, quickly recognized who he was and what his vulnerabilities were and gradually reeled him in like that. But they attend conferences. Uh, they will attend parties. Uh, anything that they can do to basically troll and look for somebody who has a specific vulnerability that would lead, that we all have vulnerabilities. We all have weaknesses and vicissitudes in their life, but they're looking for that one particular person who is willing to go beyond. And they're very, very cautious as they, as they approach it because they know that eventually the other penny is going to drop. And once that penny drops, they know in advance that this guy is going to agree to it. So there's a lot of that going on. They don't have hundreds of people in Silicon Valley doing this. There are very few. But they don't need a lot. All they need are one or two or three in order to accomplish what they have to accomplish. And they're, they're talent scouting, right? I mean, that's basically Correct. what this is. It's, it's your, you might even have a group, something that I won't say we do it, let's say a friendly intelligence agency does, is they actually have people whose job it is to spot talent. They're not the ones that actually make the approach, right? Their, their job is to find who has access and who might, like you said, have a vulnerability. And that, that's, a, that's a, a weighted word. Sometimes vulnerability is just you're bored. Right? Or vulnerability is that you're sad and you're looking for excitement or whatever. It doesn't have to be that you've been compromised by some affair or something. Your vulnerability could just be that you just you haven't been promoted in a while and you're, you want a new job. Well, sometimes the excitement comes with that. So there are people whose job literally is just to spot it. Spot it. Like yeah, you said these words spotters, right? That find people who are potential recruits. And then they back off. They, someone else comes in who does the actual first bump or anything of that effect. So absolutely, that's the case. Hi, great panel. Really looking forward to listening to the podcast. Um, I've been fascinated, especially with so much demonization of China in Congress or scrutiny of what's going on in China. Who is China's little brother, the Poland that we're missing right now when it comes to economic or national security espionage in the Valley? That's a great question. Um, as far as I understand it, there's no... There's no analogous intelligence agency, subordinate intelligence agencies to China or Russia, for that matter, like you had during the Cold War with the East Bloc. I mean, you know, there's, there was an interesting case uh, recently, a story about the Cuban government making a public fuss over the Russians trying to um, impress Cuban mercenaries to fight in Ukraine. And when I saw that story, the first thing I thought about was, this would never have happened during the Cold War. This, this would never have gone public. You would not have seen this kind of like public disagreement between a subordinate, they weren't a Warsaw Pact country, but they were, they were entirely subordinate on, to Moscow. So I don't, I mean, if, if any of the other panelists have any, you know, uh, disagreements on this, I'd be fascinated to hear about it. But I am just not aware of that kind of like, you know, the, after World War II, the, the KGB built the, the intelligence services of the Eastern Bloc. Um, and they, although there was some um, resentment, um, which actually made it easier for US intelligence to sometimes recruit some intelligence officers in the East Bloc, they were still entirely under the thumb of the KGB. And I don't think Russia or China, for that matter, have that, that ability to project force. That said, you know, the, the, 
the Ministry of State Security is just, just in terms of numerical majority, is just, it's a huge um, organization. And so China has extraordinary resources at a scale that even, I mean, there was a lot of KGB agents or KGB officers, I should say, during the Cold War. But so that's one thing to keep in mind that like, they're very, they have extraordinarily, extraordinary capabilities because of their size, but they don't have a, a constellation of other countries that are working on their behalf um, the same way. I mean, there's liaison relationships between you know, them and the Iranians, for instance, and that can be productive, but it's, it's different than the KGB East Bloc relationships. There's one area, though, too, is, is Chinese who have come, nationals who have come to the United States and the families they leave behind, are, and depending on what jobs they wind up, they are subject to all kinds of pressure from mainland China. Uh, and the number of kids that come here to go to our universities, especially in the science areas, uh, that's huge, thousands and thousands. A number of them are tasked by their intelligence services. Um, that's a huge problem. And how do you control it? That's for the, the uh, geniuses in Washington to figure out. So the, the, reason, the reason that the Cubans never would have called out the Russians before is because they were subsidizing their entire government yeah. under the Soviet yeah. system. Now it's in a little, but it doesn't mean the Cubans aren't still passing information oh, onto sure. the Russians oh, sure, and the Chinese. Sure, sure. I, there's, you're, yes, the, the, the Eastern Bloc intelligence agencies were funded by the KGB as they hammered them over the head and made them everything they are or were at the time. But you had organizations like the Cuban DGI, who was a, a wonderful subsystem of the KGB, and they still or somewhat that of the Russians, the Cuban, they'll sell to anybody who doesn't like the United States. I mean, but you do, I mean, the North Koreans is probably your only quasi analogy to Poland. Um, but you, right, Iran, Venezuela, uh, used, like, used to be Colombia, not so much anymore, certainly Cuba. These are, these are organizations that if they get information, they know they have a client in the Chinese or the Russians that they can sell it to is the wrong word, but they're not doing it just for cash, for resources. The Cubans are doing it for oil and the, you know, the things like that. So there are little brothers around. Uh, they're more kind of mercenary than they are otherwise. Um, but I think you made a good point also that the Chinese are just so huge at this point. Uh, so was the KGB, but you also had to understand that in a, in a system that was designed for one purpose and one purpose only, which is Chinese intelligence is focused on their number one threat across the Pacific, and that's us, right? Um, and, and so it's a lot easier to focus those resources than it was for the Soviets, because half the KGB, I mean, that number's general, half the KGB was focused on internal security, right? The KGB was really, really worried, not just about the Americans, but it was worried about their own people. It was worried about the Eastern Bloc and keeping the Warsaw Pact together. So they didn't have as many resources as we kind of give them. We kind of hold them to be this, this monolithic, you know, it's the KGB. Well, the KGB was a word about Lithuania and Latvia and Estonia and in Eastern Russia and the Mongols and all the different things that they had to pay attention to on a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, what, there were a million border guards in the KGB that were just focused on making sure people don't go in or out. So it was, they weren't as big as we kind of give them. The Chinese Ministry of State Security, though, is absolutely enormous. Um, and yeah, sure, they're worried about Tibet and they're worried about people doing things in Hong Kong they're not supposed to. But they can be redundant. They actually have five times as many people as the KGB even had at the height of the Cold War. 
Thank you. Question? I have a question that uh, relates more toward the economic espionage or more appropriately called commercial espionage connection to national security espionage kinds of problems. Um, and also kind of a policy analysis of couldn't it be done better? Uh, there's quite a bit of federal government research money that goes annually to research in the United States, uh, maybe 100 billion civilian, um, maybe total 200 billion. And the accounting for what is resulting from this research and how the federal government's um, need for this research in products, meaning in, uh, research that's both basic and applied. So the applied research, which leads to products or services that a company could exploit. Um, I don't believe it's actually been followed much, especially under the Bayh-Dole kind of amendment, which was done in 1980 under former President Carter, of how the federal government has rights in federal government funded research, the applied research, and also, that's more the commercial side, but also in the national security side, that federal government research and the applied research products ultimately can go to foreign governments, foreign corporations, which is kind of not what the law specifically specifies, but nobody follows that up. My basic question is, does the FBI try to follow what the Bayh-Dole law says and tries to further enforce that to the U.S. government's better national security policy? <laughs> You've stumped them. No, I mean, I've spoken a lot. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm really out of my depth, to be honest, on that question. But I can give you a very general answer that the FBI has, has stepped up to identify these companies that are doing this kind of research and attempting to match it with the essential elements of information of the Chinese and are, be, are uh, instituting really at the highest level, at the director's level, at the assistant director's level, to meet with the CEOs and to meet with the senior management of, of these companies and to brief them. And I think which is equally problematic are Chinese, country, uh, Chinese companies which are contracting with American think tanks and American scientific and research uh, laboratories to conduct maybe not necessarily uh, research that has a military capability, but maybe has a, an ability uh, to uh, be able to produce a bit of widget down the road, which may later have uh, a military um, application, so to speak. So I can, I can tell you in a very loose way that a very aggressive and active effort is being made to go out and, dare I say, educate, inform these companies and let them know that down the road it could affect them on their bottom line. Just to I, mean, speak. I, I hope that helps you a little bit. Well, I, we only have two minutes left, and I just wanted to get in that one last question. 
<laughs> we can You're, talk okay. offline if you wish. I'd be happy to do that. That's not a brand new question, just a wax philosophic and a big, big, big 50,000 foot picture about all of this, is that this is a question that it's not new. It goes back to pre-Manhattan Project, but Manhattan Project was one of the big questions here is, how do we keep this secret, right? And the answer was, you don't. The answer, Glenn Seaborg, who discovered plutonium and he was a key member of the Manhattan Project, said the only secret of the Manhattan Project would, would the atomic bomb work. Because the physics were understood by everyone. And so this is a real question, a kind of fundamental question about science and technology. Can you keep it nationalized? And the answer is almost always no. Now, can you slow other people down from getting it? And can you make them spend more money to develop it themselves? That's kind of what we're trying to do here. And what counterintelligence in the, in the science and technology field is, is to slow down the Chinese in this case, or the Russians or anyone else, you know, taking the shortcuts because we've already spent the money on it, right? And you're never gonna stop them from learning the basic fundamentals of the scientific theories behind this stuff. It's just not the way science works. But can you make it to where they have to do it themselves? Because the Russians before them, the Chinese today, love us showing us, showing them all the things not to do. And so they could skip all those mistakes and all those dead ends. So can we make them spend more money? That is the ultimate goal. Are we ever gonna stop them from getting the science and technology that we've developed? No, but can we put it off? Maybe that's what we can. Did you had a question? No, nope. no, okay. okay. Then I have 30 seconds left and I'll just have a brief question. So if Harper is sort of the anti-hero of the story, we have Caribou, the Polish double agent who helped out the US, was it out of, was he motivated by money, by patriotism of some sort? You I, met him. I, yes, yeah. uh, several times. I, I think he, he knew exactly what was going on. He was a very bright fellow, had a big family. His children were of, at university, one had, I think, graduated. He was able to get them into Sweden. Uh, one was attending the University of Sweden, I think, uh, in, in, in Stockholm. And they were pushing back, so why, why, are you, why are your kids there? And he said, well, they're going to school, blah, blah, blah. Uh, he wanted out. He saw the handwriting on the wall, I think. Uh, when we met with him, uh, he was not a young man, but very well spoken, knew the game very well because he'd been at it since what, 73, somewhere around there, uh, wearing uh, two or three hats at a time. Um, and he wanted out, and, and he knew they had just, uh, as in, in your documents, he had been called back, and it was sort of a strange way he was being called back to Warsaw. So it was, it was time for him to get his family the heck out. And thank God the agency uh, got him out, uh, and that's when Buck and I got to to speak with him, but he was a very bright gentleman, a real gentleman. Uh, he was a scientist, an academic, uh, but he was very, very concerned uh, about his safety and his family's safety because of what had happened on other occasions to people that were repatriated patriated here and put in places that were allegedly safe. Um, but he was very thankful. And I mean, I, I, I'll say that some of the we Buck and I went. Uh, I've told you the stories. We went to the agency, 
and had some high-level meetings. And uh, one of these fellows said, well, uh, can he uh, testify in a disguise? And I said, holy smacks, where did you go to law school? <laughs> and he said, well, can you lock the courtroom? And again, I said the same thing. Uh, and the agency really, for lots of good reason, as you've mentioned previously, they didn't want this guy to testify because they wanted to protect him, put him where he wanted to be, and take care of his family. And myself and Buck saying, we need you as a witness. And he was, I think, if push came to shove, maybe. But uh, these folks that do these things, uh, whether it's with regard to the Chinese intelligence services or the Soviet, uh, they put more than their lives on the line. Their families, their extended families at home are in big trouble. So it's, it's uh, something to really contemplate about what some of these people have done. Uh, some, I mean, James Harper was, was just a, a jackal. He had the mind and personality of a jackal. Uh, these people that have been doubles for us are absolute saints in a certain way of what they've given up and sacrificed and now are here, and they know they could be attacked. Uh, thank God we haven't had issues like that in the recent past. Oh, maybe that's the sequel. Thank you so much. This was a great discussion, and thank you to the audience for their questions. It's been an amazing panel. Thank you, Sharon, Zach, John, Vince, Ray. Really terrific. listening to this bonus episode of SpyCast. Please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have feedback, you can reach us by email at spycast at spymuseum.org or on Twitter at INTL SpyCast. If you go to our page, thecyberwire.com slash podcasts slash spycast, you can find links to further resources, detailed show notes, and full transcripts. I'm Aaron Dietrich, and your host is Dr. Andrew Hammond. The rest of the team involved in the show is Mike Mincy, Memphis Vaughn III, Emily Coletta, Emily Renz, Afua Anakwa, Ariel Samuel, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Huster, and Jen Iman. This show is brought to you from the home of the world's preeminent collection of intelligence and espionage-related artifacts, the International Spy Museum. <laughs>